Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. And, um, yeah, man, Andrew Cuomo is not, you know, he's not the governor anymore. In two weeks, he gave two weeks notice. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, that was the big the big news story of the day yesterday was that um, Andrew Cuomo gave this, as Brandy Jensen called it, like a weird three-act resignation <laughs> speech uh, press conference. And, uh, you know... Cuomosexuals no more. I mean, there's probably some diehard Cuomosexuals, you know. Randy Rainbow. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's gotta he deleted, be some... He deleted that video, by the way. Oh, my God. He finally deleted it. He, it took, it's like, if it took you that long, don't delete it. Just yeah. leave it up. Stand by your Just work. leave it up. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very strange day. It was, yesterday was a, a very strange day to be a New Yorker, um, and now we're going to have uh, our first girl boss in the governor's seat, uh, Kathy Hochul. Hochul. Um, she's the lieutenant governor. She's the yeah. lieutenant governor now, and she will be taking over for Daddy Cuomo and cleaning up his mess, as any girl boss should. Man, I don't know. I'm definitely really glad to see that Andrew Cuomo is out. I mean, because, I mean, he's harassed so many people. It's kind of wild that he's, like, sort of framing this as just like, oh, you know, rumors getting out of control or whatever. Like, I mean, this was an extensive investigation, and he's being really dismissive of it, which I guess makes sense because that's in his interest. But my favorite thing he said is, I'm not perverted. I'm just Italian, which has been his defense. (laughs) Yeah, but when I yeah, what what was that the um that old thing the Twinkie defense that has to be something the like the marinara defense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah, it's it, he framed it as like, you know, I'm a good New Yorker. I love New York and I'm going to step aside because this is all very distracting and it's like my dude, you he has been fighting this tooth and nail for so long that I'm almost I you know, I said last I, I I'm I'm shocked that he is uh that he did step down, but it has to just be because he knows that what's coming is worse than uh stepping down. Um like the humiliation of an impeachment hearing, which still could happen. Uh just the fact that he has resigned doesn't mean that he still can't be impeached. Um I don't think they'll impeach him. I don't think they. Yeah. I don't think they will either. But um, yeah, I think he's just trying to like mitigate the public humiliation. Later, they love public humiliation. I don't know why this is, but they love it. They love it. They're addicted to it. <laughs> all um, men love this. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing about all men is that they yeah. love to be humiliated publicly, um, and um, that's just a that's science and that's a fact. Um. And meanwhile, their girls are just like, oh, really? Right. Really? Really? Right. <laughs> you know. right. Um, and like, I mean, okay, tangent. You know, Cuomo's wife in this situation. Like, what's she going to do? Not fuck him? I mean, that doesn't seem to be what he is particularly <laughs> interested in. So uh, she really has truly no recourse in this situation. You know? And she she has no leverage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, man. Every, every girl boss needs her leverage. <laughs> yeah. His presidential ambitions are certainly dashed. I mean, Cuomo really, really wanted to be uh, the president. I saw someone obviously idiotically speculating on Twitter that this was all taking Cuomo down was like a way to like paved the way for uh, Kamala in 2024. And I'm just like, you guys need to stop like the Democratic celebrity cult. It's, it's super annoying. Um, so, you know, in other news this week, uh, the Delta virus, uh, Delta variant rather, is it's like really, really 
it's it's coming hard, especially in in red states like Texas and unvaccinated places. Florida, uh, yeah. You know, I, I don't know. To me, like, and, and this is something I'm completely willing to change my mind about, as you know, more science emerges or whatever. But I kind of feel like the the fear of the Delta variant among vaccinated people, among fully vaccinated people, is like is maybe a little bit overblown right now. Like I was, I spent a long time reading last night and like, you know, I mean, they don't, they don't have like complete comprehensive up-to-date data, but it looks like about like, I mean, like a a truly, truly, truly minuscule portion of hospitalizations um, are among fully vaccinated people. Like what I'm saying is not, don't be careful. I'm saying the vaccine offers like a lot of protection. It does. It does. And it's, I think it's, it really just speaks to how overwhelming it is. How, when when people don't get vaccinated, is it still, it's like 5% of around 5% of hospitalizations are fully vaccinated people. So that's, one in 20. And that's not to say, obviously, don't get the vaccine. 100% get the vaccine uh, because 15 out of 20 are unvaccinated people. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, this is why. No, we, it would, for 5%, it would be one out of 20. And then so 19 out of 19 20. 19 out of 20, I'm sorry. Yeah. 19 out of 20. Um, uh, it's it's uh, almost 10 a.m. I can't do math yet. And I won't, I won't, and it's uh, actually, it's my right not to do math. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think that this is why we've we've talked about herd immunity for so long and why it is actually a very real and um, important part of this whole puzzle. And, yeah, it's not um, anything new and noteworthy that the states that have the lowest rates of vaccination are the ones where you see the highest rates of hospitalizations. Um, you know, Florida now, I, I think I saw something that like Florida accounts for like one in five or one in seven new coronavirus cases nationally. Um, just Florida. I guess there's just something that I've been feeling a little bit annoyed about, about like people who are like at the same fully vaccinated people. I mean, who are at the same level of freak out, you know, that I saw in, you know, like spring 2020 or something because yeah. like, it, I don't know. I mean, it's like the, the bleaching your groceries stage. of yeah. The <laughs> yeah. Or even just the like, why would anyone go anywhere kind of thing? Like it, because I mean, to me, that's like, obviously, I'm talking about like, you know, like people making personal choices about like what, you know, what level of risk they're comfortable with. I'm totally fine with. I'm talking about the people who are actively shaming others, because the thing is, is it's like a that's an amazing way of encouraging people to not get vaccinated. You know what I mean? To like pretend that there's like literally no difference. And then it's just like, no, we're going to have to live in like level 10 freak out forever. I mean, it's like if you see like a lot of the anti-vax like fully you know idiots in my opinion like i'm not saying that like every person is an idiot but there's no logical rationalization for not getting the vaccine um at all like but Mm -hmm. you know the time magazine published this piece yesterday so that was like really wildly irresponsible and basically you know this lady was like okay one you know there are some health risks associated with the vaccine which like there's i mean there's really not, you know, like there have been, there was the, the like Johnson and Johnson thing um, with like the blood clots or whatever, but you know, it's no, like, it's no different from any other vaccine where you're like, yeah. you might get sick for a day. I got sick yeah. for a day. Yeah. That's. And you know, and she's like, and if I get the coronavirus, it's not dangerous to me. And it's like, first of all, how do you know that? How do you, you know, know that? I mean? And also the, the health effects of long COVID are so much more, pronounced and dangerous than any that you would get from the vaccine yeah and you know but the other thing was is like well i can still get uh 
I can still get the virus, you know, I can still transmit the virus, and I'm not allowed to stop social distancing or masking, so what's the point? And I mean, this narrative that, like, there's no, you know, that it's like, um, you know, you're responsible to to change your life, like, in any way, um, and not be, you know, for, for example, I don't know, be um, going to a movie theater or something, uh-huh. you know, like, if you're Talking about fully vaxxed, even with a mask on, like people who are like, why would anyone do that? It's like, I don't know, man. It's, it's not, uh, I I think, I think statistically, like based on what we're seeing now, like people are kind of, uh, there's like, there's a little bit of, a little bit of fear mongering, like people sort of like peddling this idea that like the vaccine is not really you know, making the profound difference that it is. Yeah. And it's, it's strange that that is coming from fully vaccinated people, um, which I've continued to get uh coronavirus tests even, um, after yeah, yesterday, yeah. yeah, after my vaccination and I've been free and clear this whole time. And I haven't been like, since I've been vaccinated, you know, I've traveled, I haven't been particularly like i've i've still you know worn a mask on the subway and things like that but and um like indoors but the we need to be we still need to be encouraging vaccinations wherever we can and i think that that's the whole thing with the like the vaccine passport thing and the um requiring vaccinations in um you know in restaurants and things like that um that is a good incentive for people to get vaccinated. Well, I, so I, I, okay. I ultimately like land on the same side of it as you, but um, I do want to note, and perhaps we'll discuss this more at length on a future episode. There are major civil liberties concerns with vaccine passport. And I'm talking about like from smart people on the left that are, you know, really, really concerned about like the implications of uh, giving private companies like the ability to, you know, track all of our movements and the precedent this is setting. Like, I mean, I I do just want to say that there, like, there are, there are reasons I think to, to be, uh, yeah, you know, to, to be concerned at least, at least wanting to be cautious about, um, the civil liberties implications of this, but it's like a long, long Yeah. The only reason why I would push back on that a little bit is just that, There are so many instances, there are so many circumstances under which you have to, you have to have your up-to-date vaccinations anyways, um, you know, irrespective of the coronavirus vaccine, like to go to public school in. Yeah, but that's like one. So none of these people, for the most part, they don't oppose like the card. Like if they're not like, you know, um, in terms of like just showing some kind of proof of vaccination or the card or like a. Um, a statewide vaccine registry. That's not the concern. It's like the actual app with the location tracking mm. and the potential that like, you know, we're moving towards the future where we have to show uh, employers health information. Um, yeah, we had uh, this guy, um, this uh, civil liberties lawyer, uh, Albert Fox, gone on the show recently who runs a uh, like an anti-surveillance organization that like sues the NYPD. And he's like, He's really, uh, really, really concerned about the vaccine passport. And just, you know, I mean, like a lot of we're seeing like I, I I think for myself, I ultimately land on the side of like, yes, this is like a public health emergency. And I don't really see the way out of it without this right now. But I, I do think that, you know, we are going to be in a situation in the future where we will have to like reckon with the implications of the fact that this happened, like in the same way that we saw you know, a really increased level of surveillance post 9-11. So I don't know. This week, Kate, unless you have anything else to discuss. No, let's do it. I'm so excited uh, about your interview this week. I am absolutely thrilled um, to to have spoken to our guest this week. He is a staff writer for The New Yorker, and he is the author of um, the critically acclaimed book empire of pain uh which is a a band right uh it's a it's a band uh, it's a, a, th- a thrash metal band yeah <laughs> um 
No, he he wrote this book about the Sackler family, who are the owners of Purdue Pharma, who um, kind of produced and manufactured and, uh, you know, uh, OxyContin, which is um, seen as kind of the uh, the origin story of the opioid crisis. And I had such an interesting conversation with him. He is uh, so kind uh, to give to give his time um, after I persistently spammed his uh, his DMs asking him to, to speak to me. Um, yeah, we had a really great conversation. I did try to get, I tried to back him into a few corners where he would have to say something, um, like radical and leftist, but he's a good journalist and he didn't, he didn't indulge me. Um, so. Can I get Ken Klippenstein back on the show? I know. <laughs> <laughs> He'll our, say it. He'll yeah, say it. Yeah. Our, our FOIA king. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I really encourage uh, our listeners to to read Empire of Pain. Um, I I just found it to be incredibly fascinating for a nonfiction book to read it so quickly uh, was uh, was pretty rare for me um, and. Yeah, I, I'm also really interested in one of the books that um, that Patrick mentioned in the interview called The Chicken Shit Club. So I will be um, I will be looking into that as well. But I, I, I really hope everyone enjoys uh, listening to the interview as much as I enjoyed conducting it. All right, Julia. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm very excited to hear this interview myself and uh, we'll see you later this week. Bye. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. Um, Kate is traveling right now, so she can't be with us. But today I am so thrilled to be joined by uh, staff writer for The New Yorker and author of such books as uh, Say Nothing and the most recent Empire of Pain, Patrick Radden Keefe. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be with you. Well, Patrick and I've been spamming Patrick's DMs for quite a while now on Twitter. Um, He and I first connected because we are both um, from the great state of Massachusetts. Um, But I, you know, we talk about Big Pharma on the show quite a bit. And Patrick's most recent book, Empire of Pain, is a really dizzying um, account of the Sackler family uh, who own Purdue Pharma, the company that developed and marketed and uh, OxyContin, which is uh, kind of the almost their almost sole responsibility for the opioid crisis. I feel pretty confident in saying, um, but so much has happened in the past few years since you began reporting on this um, in 2017. What do you think is the biggest surprise that has come out of all of this? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, in a way, I think there were kind of two surprises. Um, The first was that all of this stuff finally caught up with the Sacklers, which it it, it really hadn't for a long, long time. There there was, when I first started working on this in 2017, what was so weird to me was that if you did five minutes of homework, you realized that, you know, there's this drug OxyContin, which had played a a pretty significant role in helping start the opioid crisis. There's this company, Purdue Pharma, that manufactures it. And then there's this family, the Sacklers, that own the company and have made billions and billions and billions of dollars doing this. And yet somehow, certainly in 2017, they were still, you know, going to ribbon cuttings and putting their names up places and having kind of, um, you know, flattering articles written in glossy magazines about like their gardens in the Hamptons and that sort of thing. And so the first surprise is that it actually did kind of catch up with them. I think the world has sort of woken up. But then the second surprise was that um, that wasn't enough, right? That they're still going to get away with it. Right. Um, 
So it's a bit of a one-two punch, but but uh, I think those are the two things that struck me most. So most recently, and we'll, you know, I want to talk about so many things as it relates to this book. First of all, I just want to say that I loved this book um, and I read it in three days and I just cannot believe how much work must have gone into this, again, dizzying account of this really large kind of tangled web of a family. Um, but as you said, they are, <laughs> they are probably going to get away with it. And um, so they have a, a bankruptcy hearing that is, uh, that is coming down the pike. Um, I think the, the confirmation start later this week and the settlement agreement, which was, you know, the, the first drafts of it, which were made public, um, maybe a month or so ago, say that the Purdue Pharma uh, will pay $4.3 billion uh, in a penalty and Purdue Pharma will become a kind of public company and the profits of which will go to uh, supporting ending the opioid epidemic or treating the opioid epidemic. But as has been pointed out by you and so many others, um, $4.3 billion for the Sacklers is a slap on the wrist. And it also doesn't name any of the Sackler family uh, as having any personal wrongdoing. Um, and the settlement of $4.3 billion will be paid out over nine years, most of which will be at the back end of that nine years. So there is a not unreasonable chance that the Sacklers could be, as you have pointed out, richer than they are right now. What does this, I mean, what does this mean for the American justice yeah. system? <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. I mean, it's such a hard thing to wrap your mind around. And I do think some of this is also just the kind of, you know, billionaires are not like you and me. Like the, the math for them is different. Um, and so just first of all, even the idea that it's, that they're going to pay $4.5 billion, but it's very important to them that they're not going to make an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. And it's just funny, right? Because to me, to like the guy on the street, it's like, well, if I hadn't done anything wrong, I think I probably wouldn't want to pay right. $4.5 billion. Um, so there's that. And then there's the weirdness of the number itself where I think it, it, I think of it as like, it's like when you turn a telescope around, you know, where, where on the one hand, $4.5 billion is a ton of money. I mean, indisputably, that's a lot of money. And I think part of the reason that the vast majority of the creditors who are involved in this bankruptcy, and so this is like personal injury claimants, people who've lost loved ones to the opioid crisis, people who've struggled with addiction themselves, but it's also the state's. Um, that are suing the family and the company, which is pretty much every state, right? Uh, including our fair state of Massachusetts. Um, part of the reason shout out to Moore Healy, shout out to Moore Healy. <laughs> the um, part of the reason that they, I think, so many of them have signed off, right, is that they are struggling to, you know, the opioid crisis is costing trillions of dollars, mm -hmm. and so and taxpayers are on the hook basically to 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 pay for a lot of this and. So the states see $4.5 billion and they think I'm going to, you know, that's, that's real money, right? Like right. we can get, if we can get a 50th of that, um, that's something we want to pursue. The tricky thing is if you turn the telescope around the other way, the Sacklers have an $11 billion fortune. They're going to pay right. it out, as you said, over nine years. So, you know, depending on how they invest their money, like even really, really conservatively, if you're just talking about kind of like interest on that fortune, and then a really low rate of return, they can pay for it with interest. They, right. they never need to, you know, to, to touch the principal itself. Um, and so that doesn't seem like much in the end. I mean, it's this kind of strange thing, right? Where it, it, it's a paradox to suggest that $4.5 billion is not a lot of money. But if you have an $11 billion fortune and you're paying it out over nine years, it's really not. Right. And also... I, just thinking about this from a legal perspective, um, 
two arms of the Department of Justice have said that this agreement violates the U.S. Constitution and due process. Um, and, you know, I think dozens of states have objected to this this particular agreement, but it nevertheless looks like it's still going to proceed uh, in this way, um, which is really remarkable. If an agreement like this violates the Constitution, one would assume (laughs) that it wouldn't proceed as such. Um, And as also, as you note in the book, for years, because the Sacklers have known that this day of reckoning was coming, they have been taking money out of the company and protecting it in uh, in trusts for a situation exactly like this. And they have, as part of the agreement, a non-consensual third-party release that no future lawsuits can be filed against members of the family. And that also protects over 200 companies and over 200 trusts where the family has kind of tucked their money away. Um, so is this is this anything at all? I I mean, that's what I keep coming back to. Yeah. Is this, you know, half a million people are dead. And uh, last year was the highest death toll on record since the opioid began in one year, which was uh, 70,000. You know, is there any kind of justice in this agreement? I mean, you know, it's the thing that I think is so disappointing is that um, I kind of feel like it was always going to end this way. I mean, I, I think to me, this is a story about the Sacklers and their fiendishly clever lawyers. But it's also a story on some level about our system and the way it works, right? And And... And if you have a family with that level of wealth and influence, um, they tend to get away with it. I, I, you know, it's just, and, and I think it's funny, we see so many of these stories, whether it's like Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein or the Sacklers, where um, you have a, a kind of wealthy, powerful, bad actor who's doing bad stuff over years and years. And then you have to sort of move out from them. And there's this ring of enablers, Mm. whether it's, you know, lawyers, law firms, um, PR, spin doctors, you know, consulting firms like McKinsey. And at my most cynical, I feel like our whole system on some level is designed at this point to insulate the very rich mm. and the very powerful from any real meaningful consequences uh, for their own bad actions. So, you know, is this justice? No way. If you, right. you know, I, one of the weird hazards of having been writing about this for the last four years is that I get notes every week. Um, it's generally from mothers, but sometimes from fathers who've lost children right. to the opioid crisis. And if you talk to those people, um, they don't look at this and see, you know, like $4.5 billion and no admission of wrongdoing by the right. Sacklers and they get to keep the vast bulk of their fortune. That doesn't look like justice. Um, so I, I think you could get, you know, you could get a bunch of lawyers to explain to you why it is. And, um, you know, even the U.S. government, I think, is kind of of two minds here because clearly the, you know, the Biden Justice Department did say that this is an unconstitutional deal. Basically that like a bankruptcy judge in White Plains does not get to say that say like some grieving mother in Reno, like in another state, in another part of the country can never bring a claim against the family. She's being denied her due process when a bankruptcy judge in White Plains, New York says, okay, I'm immunizing this family forever from any litigation. that is a, uh, you know, I, 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 to me, that, that doesn't look like justice. And yet, I, you know, I wish I could say that this is the big outlier case. Like, I, I think, sadly, this is a very a particularly egregious illustration of a feature of our system. It's like a feature, not a bug, right? This is yes. the way it works. 
Yeah, that was actually one of the questions that I had as well, particularly as it relates to our healthcare system. Um, you know, apart from the justice system, but you know, in a for-profit healthcare system like the one that we have, was something like this more or less always going to happen, do you think? Yeah, I mean that's so in in the book, one of the things that I one of the choices that I made early on was I didn't want to just write an opioid crisis book. Right. To me, to me, there was this more interesting story, which goes back to the 1940s, um, where you, you you really get the development of penicillin during the Second World War. And then after the war, you suddenly get all these companies making new drugs. Mm-hmm. And it's people like Arthur Sackler, who was sort of the original patriarch of the family, who died before the introduction of OxyContin. But, but one of the things Arthur Sackler did was he basically said, if you want to sell drugs, you know, the person you want to sell really isn't the consumer, it's the doctor. Yes. So you want to go out there and sell the doctor. And so there's this kind of breaking down of the boundaries between medicine and commerce that, that really starts to happen in a significant way in the 40s. But ironically... It's actually another Sackler who's kind of leading the charge. Um, and I just feel like that gets more and more entrenched over the decades. And so at this point, um, it's, it, it's very, very difficult, I think, to kind of disentangle any like Hippocratic, you know, first do no harm. This is really just for the patient uh, idea in our medical establishment from the profit motive, which is just everywhere. And if you've like, you know, if you've had surgery, if you've had a loved one get sick, if you've been through the kind of the whole process at a hospital or with a primary care provider, you've seen the way that operates. You know, you're a, um, you're part of a big profit making system. Right. And one of the things that was so interesting about this book was learning about Arthur Sackler, who essentially, as you noted, uh, basically invented the way that drugs are marketed in this country and the kind of, you know, quid pro quo relationship that a lot of pharmaceutical companies have with doctors and people who conduct studies and uh, and things like that. And I think the thing about this is that they, uh, the Justice Department and Congress has tried to prosecute the pharmaceutical industry before, as you note, particularly in uh, in the 50s, uh, which you have a, a chapter about Senator Kefauver and... Uh, oh, you nailed the pronunciation. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I think I t- it took me about six months to get that one <laughs> Um, that was really a shot in the dark. So I'm glad, uh, I'm glad it, it worked. Um, uh, it has, it has that old, it has that old Brahmin ring to it. Kefauver. Kefauver, right. Uh, (laughs) A a Tennessee Brahmin in this case. Yeah. Um, and, but it does seem like there was quite a big drop off between that series of hearings and the ones that kind of came into the 2000s. Um, I know that there were a lot of of other sort of um, industries to go after, but why do you think there was there was such a drop off in in oversight in the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bunch of stuff. It's it's lobbying a yeah. lot of it. Um, and it's the uh, it's the kind of I mean, some of this is like specific to these pharma companies to Purdue and other companies where they pay a lot for lobbyists. They pay a lot for these high end lawyers. You know, if Congress is coming after you or if you see some bill coming down the pike or if some state, if the state of Massachusetts or the, you know, the state of Arizona, pick the state um, is trying to push something at a state legislative level, then you hire state lobbyists and you Mm -hmm. try and kind of kill it. If prosecutors come after you, you, um, you know, you hire somebody like Mary Jo White to, uh, to go in and meet with their bosses to like go over their heads. You hire these former prosecutors who have a ton of connections 
Um, there's a whole playbook and Purdue is not the only one that does this. I also think there's a kind of a, a broader trend that we've seen, not just with the pharma business, but in general, um, I would encourage your listeners to pick up. There's an amazing book by Jesse Isinger that came out a few years ago called the chicken shit club, mm. which is about how the U S government basically stopped prosecuting corporate executives when they do things wrong. Instead, what, it, what they would do is like work out deals with the corporations, but no executives go to jail. Right. And of course, if you think about trying to disincentivize behavior, right? Like if, you, if you're an executive making $10 million a year and you know that there's something you could do that will bring in a huge amount of money to the company, and the worst thing that could happen is the company will get fined, but like nothing's going to happen to you. Right. Um, that's really not enough to change your behavior. And so I think that's been a kind of a trend that we've seen happening. So I think it's the confluence of all of this stuff means that we have a, f a federal system, certainly, that is, um, you know, it's not just that it's deferential to these interests, it's that it actively covers for them in many instances. I had this incredibly depressing experience where I went and testified on Capitol Hill about this, this Sackler deal. And, um, it was, it was like a three and a half hour hearing. And certainly the Republicans on the committee just didn't want what I was selling. And they were going <laughs> to talk, talk about anything else. And it was just amazing the kind of shamelessness with which they changed the subject. And I feel like it's one of those things that like intellectually I knew it's a broken system. Right. But to sit there in the room for three and a half hours and just watch the dysfunction up close. It was just, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm naive to, to have found it so depressing, but I just, I found it so depressing. No, it, it absolutely is. And I think to your point about um, companies being prosecuted, but individuals uh, being completely absolved of any wrongdoing, you know, in, in our recent public memory, I would say the, the 2008 financial crisis comes to mind in terms of you know, <laughs> the fact that zero C-suite executives went to jail. Oh. Um, and I think that that has really engendered a great deal of distrust and pessimism uh, among the American public for both Democrats and Republicans, the, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And, you know, to that point, you wrote in the book that the opioid crisis is, among other things, a parable about the awesome capability of private industry to subvert public institutions. And, you know, we've seen this time and again with big tobacco, the fossil fuel industry. Jane Mayer, your your colleague at The New Yorker, uh, wrote a great book, Dark Money, um, that really goes into the, uh, you know, how how that the fossil fuel industry has gotten away with murder, the gun lobby, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, at this point, do you feel that the kind of summary distrust in public institutions that we see in America uh, from the American public, do you think that that is justified? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah, the, I mean, that, <laughs> on some level, that could be like the thesis of the 400 page book I just wrote. You know, yeah. I, mean, I, I feel like the, um, yeah, I, I, to me, what is so, again, the Sack, look, the Sacklers are interesting, right? And mm -hmm. they're, they're a family. There's all these dynastic issues. I gravitated to the subject in part because there's this like story of this kind of strange, kooky, malevolent, greedy family. Um, and these terrible things that they've done. But, but in a weird way, like they could never have, done any of it if they weren't embedded in a system that enables and abets that kind right. of behavior at every step of the way. And so I think that's completely right. I mean, I think, and, and it's, it's hard, right? Because I feel as though the, um, you get these glimmers of hope. I mean, one of the things that's been so depressing about the Sackler bankruptcy actually is I know just a lot of people have been following it very closely, mm -hmm. many of whom have some kind of personal tragedy in their life that, um, you know, is the reason that they're so invested. And I, I'm probably just more of a cynic, right? Like from the very beginning, I mean, my book came out in April, long before we knew how this was going to end. And at the end of the book, I say, 
I'm going to tell you how this is going to end. Yeah. And, and I was right. I mean, yeah. you know, like I wasn't wrong. I sort of predicted that it was going to, that they were going to get away with it. And here's how they were going to do it. And, and it, you know, here we are in August and it gives me no pleasure to say, I told you so. But what's been so heartbreaking is that um, I know a lot of people who have been watching this thing and it's like their minds can't process. It's like they keep waiting for, it's like they keep feeling like help is on the way. Like, right. Like, 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 like the referee is going to step in. The grown up is going to come in and intervene. Right. You know, justice is going to be done. And um, I feel like the, uh, it's, it's hard to know how to operate when, when that's not true, right? When you, you sort of keep, you keep, maybe we've all just watched too many movies, right? But it's like you, you wait for the moment in the third act when like you go from the sort of the lowest of the low to then the cavalry rides in and saves the day. And I think it's, it's so dispiriting to realize that like the cavalry was bought off, you right. know? Ages ago. 100%. And I do, we've talked about this on the show before, but I do think that the West Wing is particularly responsible for this kind of totally um, uh, cognitive dissonance that we all find ourselves in where we think that, uh, that justice will be served and that the regulations in place will be enforced. And yeah. that is almost never the case. Um, and, you know, one of the things, one of the lines that I remember from the book was in the the hearings in the fifties. Um, again, the legal teams on uh, that the pharmacal the pharmaceutical industry is able to employ. Um, I think one of the one of the members of Congress is quoted in the book as saying that um, the lawyers uh, that the pharmaceutical industry has make. The steel industry look like popcorn salesmen, yeah, yeah. Uh, popcorn vendors rather. Right, right. Uh, and it's true. The you know the cadre of lawyers that uh, that these these large corporations, not just pharmaceutical, but any of these large corporations, are able to employ, um, along with the fact that our regulators are bought and paid for, essentially um, means. That, as you say, this is a, a feature, not a bug of the system. And it is incredibly depressing. Uh, <laughs> so I don't really have a question there as much as I'm sad. No, but um, I, agree with, look, I agree with you. And I, and I don't think, um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's weird for me, right, is I went to law school. Um, and Which I, I really do want to ask you about that because I know that that is part of your, you have two master's degree degrees and you went to law school are you okay? <laughs> I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is no. This was my my is my. I'm just very. Uh, I think it was not a. Um, uh, I didn't know a lot of people growing up who wrote for the New Yorker, and so I certainly had. I always knew I wanted to do roughly what I'm doing right now, but it took me a long time to figure out how to make a living doing it and actually make it a real thing. And so, and in the interim, I kind of. I felt like I needed a backup plan. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was just like in school and and um, and went to law school and took the bar, and I never practiced. Basically, things started to work out writing wise right after that. But the um, well, thank God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, even, even that, even then, it was a struggle. I know God, I would have been a terrible lawyer. But the but it's interesting to me though because there, because if you talk to lawyers, there is a sense that. It's very much a kind of aspect of that profession that a lot of people believe that you can, you know, the lawyer is not the client, right? You can, you can represent Eichmann, you can represent Charles Manson, um, you can represent Ted Bundy, and it doesn't necessarily reflect on your morality. Um, but I have to say, it's, it's a weird thing, but I'm kind of, I, I am beginning to sort of push against that on some level. I feel like if you... Um, if you spend your career representing the Sacklers, uh, I think some of the taint eventually gets on you. Like whether you can tell yourself it's Absolutely. not the case, but I feel like it, it's morally, um, they wouldn't have been able to do what they've done without your good offices. Right. So, so you don't get to go home and sleep well at night and, you know, show up at the PTA meeting and, and not have people. Uh, wonder about how you make your living or you shouldn't get to. Right. 
no, I com- I completely agree with that. And anyone who says, I mean, law is a, to me, especially corporate law, maybe not law writ large, but uh, corporate law is an inherently cynical profession, I would argue. The, the idea that one is divorced from their client in some way is laughable. Um, I, I, I have another question, which is that, you know, the Sacklers did everything they could to shield uh, the family itself from any prosecution, as we've we've talked about, and insulate themselves from public and criminal scrutiny. Um, but as you point out in the book, the Sacklers were not interested in developing non-opioid medications. Uh, it was a, a one-horse town of a corporation, and... Um, of all the precautions the family took with their business, why were they so completely opposed to diversifying and being anything other than essentially a single product company? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, you know, one of the weirdnesses of writing this book is that it's is that I didn't have access to the family. They, mm-hmm. you know, they <laughs> they were threatening to sue me the whole time. They did not give interviews, um, and so I had to. But I did have a lot of their emails. And um, which had come out through litigation or were leaked to me. And um, and I interviewed a lot of people who worked with the family, worked with the company. And so what I would hear again and again from people is that they would go in and pitch other, you know, the, the family would pay lip service to the idea that they needed to diversify. Mm-hmm. Um, but the... Um, but then they never would. And, and what would happen is that people would, would, <laughs> would pitch stuff and they'd be like, all right, well, what are the profit margins like on this, whatever, you know, this, um, I don't know what, asthma medication or whatever the thing right. is that somebody was pitching. Um, and they'd be like, oh, well, you know, here's, here's what the profit margins would look like. And they were never as good as the profit margins on opioids. And so they'd right. be always like, ah, oh, we don't like it. But of course, like nothing is as good as the profit margins on opioids. Right. If that's where you're setting the bar, it's going to be very difficult to find something. So it was one of these funny things where I, I feel as though they kind of, they kept telling themselves we want to diversify, but they just love that sweet Oxycontin money. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can. It just seems. Again, for for a family that took such pains to protect themselves, that seems like a pretty obvious way that they they could have. Uh and but there's a flip side of that, right? Which is that which is this question. I mean, there's somebody I interviewed who worked very closely with the family who said some of this is actually a hazard of being born rich, I think, but basically said the weirdness here is that they the second and third generations, they're kind of born into this thing. Mm-hmm. And they were con- they sort of convinced themselves that they were of this family of business geniuses, when in fact they weren't. I mean, what the guy said was about OxyContin. He was like, it was like, it's as if you, you know, you moved to, uh, you moved to Texas and you were like, what's this black shit coming out of the ground? <laughs> you know, um, and, and, you know, and suddenly you're like, you have this huge fortune. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in his mind, they kind of got lucky. I don't think that's, I think there was actually some real skill with OxyContin, but I think the idea that they could ever replicate that is maybe giving them too much credit. Right. Um, and so I think that, you know, there was a sense in which like they had, they like won the lottery this one time. Um, and the hard thing for them is then to, to use Jonathan Sackler's words, he said, what we have now is kind of more of a milking strategy than a growth yeah. strategy. Yeah. And so this is, this is like an aside question, but I was wondering this throughout the whole book, you know, you, you have, as you just said right now, that there was scale involved in the uh, the manufacturing and distribution of OxyContin. And Richard Sackler was, uh, was one of those second, the, one of the second generation mm-hmm. Sacklers. Um, and he was CEO of the company, uh, for most of the time that OxyContin was, uh, well, he was CEO for a very critical period in the right. early stages. Yeah. Yes. But, from everything I read about him in the book, and you do uh, allude to his intelligence a number of times, but he doesn't strike me as a particularly smart guy. <laughs> uh, so I think I think he is really smart. Um, it seems like he kind of got pushed through med school. He got pushed uh, through college, as yeah. so many rich kids do. Right. 
Yeah. So, okay. Well, there's, it's funny. There's a line that somebody, um, somebody I once knew used about, um, David Petraeus, the, the former, uh, heard of him. uh, (laughs) So, um, so somebody once said of of David Petraeus, um, David Petraeus, smartest man in the U S army. And he's not half as smart as he thinks he is. And I sort of feel like it's a similar thing with Richard where it's like, he's, he's, I think he's genuinely a very intelligent guy who thinks that he's a super genius. Yes. Um, and, um, I also think that he's, and this is weirdly, this is if there's a single Sackler trait apart from greed. Um, I think this is the kind of the big family trait. He's, he's very kind of unself-aware. Like he's, he's, he's totally incapable of stepping outside himself. I mean, for me, right. It's like, if I go to a party or give a talk or have this conversation with you right now, you know, chances are that like late tonight, I'll sort of think through and be like, oh, did I put that right? You know, maybe I should have phrased that differently. You know, why did I, right. I'm why, gonna did, be, why did I, I make that joke? You know, you know, I'm going to be thinking about that too. I'm going to be like, wow, Patrick really fucked up a lot of times. There you go. Here. Exactly. And... Exactly. You know, <laughs> but I feel as though we, you know, most, most people, look back on any day in their life with it, with a certain distance. And they're like, Oh, did I do that? Did I make the right call there? Did I, you know, I, I mean, I have, I have two, I have two small kids, right? Like I'm constantly second guessing myself and thinking, did I do the right thing about that? This is a family of people who just like, they don't, they don't have that gene. They don't have that ability to reflect and think maybe I fucked up. And so that to me is the key with Richard. That's how he can be, I think quite smart, but also, incredibly stupid about a lot of things is that he has, he he seems to lack any ability to um, examine himself. Right. And I actually do think, and this is not just an opinion, there have been studies about how people born into wealth have less empathy than those who are not. Um, And certainly the wealthier you get, the more insulated you are from consequences and kind of the machinations of the real world. Uh, So that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, You know, as you said, the Sacklers pretty adamantly refused to speak to you (laughs) and kept threatening to sue you. And um, it seems put a tail on you at some point, um, which is extremely metal. So congratulations. Uh, (laughs) But You have said, uh, quote, it was important for me to include the point of view of the Sacklers, even if they wouldn't talk to me. The stories the Sacklers tell themselves are really important. You know, what is it about the family's personal self mythology that you find compelling? Well, I don't I mean, so here's the thing, you know, this book is what we at the, you know, journalists talk about the right around, right? Which is mm-hmm. a, sto- a story when you don't have access to the person at the heart of the story. And um, I do a lot of right arounds. I probably do more right arounds than the next person. Best in the biz. It may be a, uh, you know, a, low, a low bar. But the, um, uh, but the um, and I don't, um, uh, I, I always want to try and incorporate the point of view. Like the, the most interesting thing for me is what is the story that, that these people tell themselves. Um, and with the Sacklers, I think that, you know, it is amazing when you get their emails and I've gotten these private family emails, private WhatsApp logs, all this back and forth between you know, siblings and cousins as recently as just a couple of years ago. And in their version of the story, the real victim of the opioid crisis is the Sackler family. Yes. Which is just amazing, right? And we've seen that so many times. I mean, we see that so many times with kind of super rich, powerful people that they, you know, Harvey Weinstein, as we, (laughs) you know, Harvey Weinstein is the the victim of the Harvey Weinstein story, according to him. Uh, yeah, basically anyone who has been kind of publicly outed with this this level of of magnitude um, becomes a a victim in their own mind. I think. Yeah, and I think that's reinforced. I mean, this is where the kind of being born rich part of it comes in. I yeah. think that the um, I, I think that you know from the outside you would think that if you had 
all these lawyers and PR advisors surrounding you and you're paying them a ton of money, um, that that would help. It would like, you know, it would improve your judgment about how to move through the world. When in fact, I think it's often the opposite. It's yeah. that if you have a grievance or you have a kind of slightly distorted sense of reality, and then you have all these people who are getting paid a thousand dollars an hour to make you feel, you know, like you're the victim or, right. or like you have state of the art judgment. Um, uh, I, I think it can actually be a huge disservice, right? Because what happens is it's just your like disconnection from the real world that all of us live in just gets bigger and bigger. Um, in part, I really think because you have all these kind of paid lackeys who laugh really hard at every bad joke that you crack. And, um, right. I gotta, I gotta get some of those. those, (laughs) No, but this is kind of my point. Think about what a disadvantage it would be. Like as somebody who does stand up, right. Imagine, imagine that like you, that you're, that like when you're the first person you run everything by, is just like every every single bad joke. They're like, you're. It's just, it's gonna kill. You know. Oh my god, I. Uh, It'd be a disaster. It would be a disaster. But, but that's but that's but that's how you become Richard Zucker. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, you know, that's how you get to say I don't know one hundred times in a deposition, <laughs> exactly. as Richard Zackler did. Um, also. Yeah, just what a depressing looking looking guy. Just to editorialize for a second, just a guy who makes me sad when I look at him. <laughs> well, it's so it's so funny because the um, I was just I was just joking with somebody about this. So there is a so John Oliver had all these different people play Richard Sackler, Michael Keaton, Richard Kind, all these all these actors. Hulu is working on a limited series that's going to come out later this year based on Beth Macy's book Dope Dope Sick. Um, in which uh, he's in which Richard Sackler is played by um, oh my god I'm gonna blank on his name an amazing actor um, whose name I'm momentarily blanking on Netflix is making another limited series in which Matthew Broderick is gonna play Richard Sackler so it's just funny to me that you get all of these actors who are so much more charismatic than the man himself you know wait but also I do think that Matthew Broderick as Richard Sackler is an inspired choice I do too because he has. Did you watch 30 Rock? I did. Okay. Do you remember the character that he played on 30 Rock? Uh, Cooter Burger, I think oh, his vaguely. name was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is such a Richard Sackler kind of, yeah. kind of character, like, but I guess a little dumber um, and more powerless. Um, oh, we'll soon see. I can't. Oh, man, I can't wait. It's going to be. I mean, I think. Limited series like that, the productions like that, I think they give some level of catharsis that our justice system does not. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, in the absence of the Sacklers facing any any criminal wrongdoing and basically in absence of them having to give away, having to forfeit their fortune, which they will not have to do. Um, ruining their good name, which is a point you make in the book uh, a number of times, is perhaps like the most justice we can expect. Um, I think that's right. I think the, um, you know, I think that's probably pretty cold comfort for a lot of people. But I do think that the... um, you know, it's one of those funny things where I know it matters a lot to them to have, they always have these provisions saying that they'll make no admission of wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really all about controlling the narrative. And I think this is one of these things where they don't control the narrative and they, they'd like to, but like, that's one of those things where um, that's something you can't buy with money. Mm-hmm. You can have all the money in the world, you know. And you can sort of avoid accountability and justice, but you, you can't change the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I agree. I mean, I think people are going to watch that Dope Six series and people are going to watch the series Painkiller on Netflix and um, they'll read the books, they'll read the articles. And uh, I, I think that that, I don't think they're ever going to be able to outrun the truth. Yeah. And I think that that is why it's, so important and so astute that you made that you wrote this book centered around the family 
and as you said earlier, not just an opioid crisis book, because we need to know the names of the the family. They can't. They should not be allowed out in polite society. They should not be allowed to be celebrated by giving a a wing to the Tate Modern Museum or the Museum of uh, Metropolitan Art or however many hundreds of <laughs> so quote unquote many. philanthropic uh giving organizations uh that they uh, that they've paid bought and paid for um i i don't want to take up too much of your time so i i will end on on this kind of question I've been thinking a lot about The New Yorker um, because yourself, your colleagues, Jane Mayer and Ronan Farrow, have become kind of the the muckraking journalists of our day, and you're all housed under one roof. Is there anything in particular about The New Yorker that you think allows you to kind of put out this really groundbreaking investigative journalism? Um, I mean, the New Yorker is a very particular kind of place. You know, I, I think that there's a huge amount of great investigative journalism that happens at newspapers still and, and, and newspaper, but newspapers are also just different kinds of creatures, right? You get right. these like teams, these enterprise teams working together and, and, um, uh, the New Yorker is much more, I mean, Jane and Ronan have collaborated on some stuff, but by and large, most of us are sort of on our own. Mm -hmm. um, to me, it's, there is a kind of implicit, um, you know, it's part of the mission, like David Remnick came from the world of newspapers and, and um, that aspect of it has always appealed to him, the, the big investigative story. There's resources, like I don't, I mean, it, it, it is a it's a huge privilege to do the kind of work that I do. And I can say this in part because, you know, there were times in my life and my career where I didn't have these kinds of resources. Right. Or, right. or even when I was a, when I was a, a freelancer for the New Yorker and not on staff, like it's just, I can spend six months, nine months, a year working on a piece. I can have two incredible fact checkers coming through every fact in the piece. I can pay for court transcripts. I can hire fixers if I need to. There's an amazing lawyer at the New Yorker who is not easily cowed. And um, you better believe like the Sacklers have sent some very nasty legal letters about me to my bosses at the New Yorker, like saying really terrible and not true things about, you know, right. what an ir irresponsible hack I am. Um, <laughs> and, and if, if, uh, if, you know, at a, at, it might be the case that at another place that was more easily scared or had less resources, um, or hadn't already gone a number of rounds with Harvey Weinstein and Les Moonves and the Scientologists and whoever else, um, that a letter like that could be like the end of my career, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a this is a family and a company that has that there are journalists out there who, you know, who wrote about Purdue and OxyContin and aren't working in journalism anymore right. because the company came after them. Um, so um, all of that, I think, is is a huge advantage and a gift and um, and a privilege, you know, I mean, it's not something I, I take for granted at all. But I, I, so I think that there's a kind of a, there's like a philosophy and an infrastructure and an attitude at the yeah. publication. And, and all of that is really, really helpful. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that, that we have uh, your reporting and Jane's and Rodin's. Um, my last question is purely your opinion. I don't even know if you can can say this, but knowing what you know uh, about this kind of class of people, about billionaires, what would you like to see legislatively done about our our billionaire problem in uh, in the United States? Oh man, I mean. Um... Uh, 
boy, how long you got? I mean, I, I think there's, I think there's a lot that could happen. I, to me, though, I guess the 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 big number one thing would be that I just think that the system should function for those people the way it functions for everyone else. Right. And so that would be true for the IRS. It would be true for the Department of Justice. It would be true for regulators like the FDA. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the idea that you have, like in a weird way, I think that there's a lot of law and and regulation already on the books mm-hmm. that would make this a much better country if you enforced it for that group of people the way you already enforce it for everyone else. Right. Um, and to me, that's like the low hanging fruit. You don't need to you don't need to like write any new legislation. Uh, you don't need to totally change the paradigm. Just let the law work. And if, you know, if, uh, if bad actors do bad things, then hold them to account. Hmm. I personally would love to totally change the paradigm and I want to see Jeff Bezos's head on a stake, but, um, (laughs) but that's just me. And that's not something that, uh, an esteemed writer for the New Yorker would, would express. And I understand whatever, uh, it's the, yeah, heads on stakes. I, you know, I tend to stay away from, (laughs) well, that's why I'm here. Um, absolutely. Patrick, I thank you so much for your time. I, I really can't thank you enough for, for writing the book. Everyone should, should read empire of pain, which by the way, excellent title, uh, and say nothing was an equally excellent title. I loved both books. Um, is there, there anything that you would like to plug before you go? Oh, I got nothing. I got, got nothing. nothing. Okay, yeah. great. I'm, you know, um, you yeah. can follow him on Twitter, uh, as well. He's, uh, he's always out there. He's, he's good on Twitter as well. Um, but Patrick, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. Walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is your land.